Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Hey, I'm Sarah Bivens. And I'm Matthew Bivens. And this is the Doing It at Home podcast, the only podcast dedicated to empowering, loving, and honest conversations around home birth. What started as a fun way for us to document our own home birth journey has turned into a platform for sharing birth stories, resources, and education with the goal of empowering mamas and families to make the birth decisions that work best for them. Plus, we get into the antics, breakdowns, and breakthroughs of our own experience of marriage and parenthood. All right. You ready, babe? Yep. Let's do it, mama. Hi. Welcome back to the Doing It at Home podcast. Thanks for being here. We appreciate you. It is another great day to talk about babies and birth and all those beautiful things and informed choices, empowered decisions, magical experiences. And today's conversation, today's interview lines up oh so well with that. It is, ooh, it's really powerful. And I am confident that it's going to leave you with something special, whether that's thinking about something differently or just a really connected moment of resonance because just because I'm so grateful for this amazing human that we got to interview and chat with. And we're going to share that with you in a minute. But before we do, shout out and thank you to Parents on Demand, the podcast network that we are part of, the family that we get to belong to as far as providing parents with all the resources necessary in one place in in all the podcasts that are there and represented from trying to conceive to you know the preconception phase pregnancy birth parenthood beyond it's all there for you where you can listen to empowering conversations hear from experts get some laughs as well uh, it's it's all there so check it out parentsondemand.com download the app on your android or ios device and you can listen you can listen there and connect with us. So all the ways you can do that, there are links in the show notes for our website. Check out the shop, buy your doing it at home shirts or tanks or sweatshirts. Follow us on our social media platforms or reach out if there's anything that you want to share with us and subscribe and drop a review as well. So <laughs> there you have it. There are all of your things that you can do as far as, you know, supporting the show, being a part of the community, getting more involved. You have options. Okay. So today's interview is new and special and something we haven't done before on the show. And it's just, I'm so excited about it. So we are chatting with Dr. Nathan Riley, and he is an OBGYN who integrates and has studied and utilized midwifery, you know, the model and really utilizes that in his practice, in his care that he provides. And according to him, he says he um, practices midwifery or kind of goes along that, that line, that model, unless there's an absolute need for medical intervention. And he reached out to us a while back and we connected and we've had a dialogue, you know, back and forth. And now here we are having this conversation. And like I said, powerful goosebump moments for all of us, all three of us when we were chatting. And, you know, we talked to Dr. Nathan about his journey into um, obstetrics, you know, deciding to become an OBGYN, where and how and why midwifery is something that interested him. And we really talk about how he approaches birth and the space that he holds for birth. And it's 
again, <laughs> I can't say enough about how amazing it is. So we set it up really well. And there's some really great context in the beginning of our conversation for everything that we're going to dive into. So I'm just going to let that do its thing. And I'm going to let Dr. Nathan just share his brilliance with us and his energy and his light. And it's, it's really powerful again. So thank you so much to Dr. Nathan for joining us. Here's a quick word from our sponsor, and then we'll get into that conversation. A supportive work environment can help everyone working in schools stay resilient. Just finding people that can reassure me that I'm doing my best and that there are people out there who understand me and can help me through these situations. You are not alone. Leaning on each other, uh, colleagues in education is, is essential. You have to. We take care of one another. Find what helps at cdcfoundation.org slash how right now. That's cdcfoundation.org slash how right now. A lot is being asked of people working in schools. Teachers have more and more things to do. The shortage of teachers right now, um, you know, having to fill a lot of holes and, and wear a lot of hats, it's, it's very difficult. There are steps you can take to manage stressful times, whether in the classroom or outside of work. For me personally, I can disconnect by just being outside. Laughing <laughs> works a lot. Find what helps at cdcfoundation.org slash how right now. Hi, Nathan. Welcome to the Doing It at Home podcast. How are you? I'm good, Sarah. Thanks. I'm, I'm great. It's <laughs> rainy here in Louisville and it's, uh, it smells earthy and it's, it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Love that, man. Compared to Love San Diego. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We were talking before we hit record about the different weather in Southern California versus Kentucky. And uh, we've got a little bit of that, that cloudiness and some rain coming our way here in Atlanta. And so uh, it's it's nice to share that with you on this coast, man. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Everybody in Southern California is like, oh, my God, this guy. <laughs> He's applauding the rain. Like, uh -huh. I'm telling you guys, it's not bad to have rain once in a while. It's, it's okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, Nathan, can I call you Dr. Nathan for the purpose of this show, or would you prefer me call you Nathan? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I, Dr. Nathan's a funny combination and I, I want to do that because okay. I've never been called Dr. Nathan before. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, I just love it, you know, for the purpose of the show and asking you all these questions we're going to ask you. So Dr. Nathan, would you please tell us, um, a little bit about who you are and because there might be some interesting things going on in the ears of some listeners or mamas right now, like, okay, there's a man, his name's Nathan. Like, what are we going to talk about? Like, what is this? Um, so please just yeah. tell us a little bit of who you are. Uh, yeah, so I'm a um, I'm a man, and <laughs> I at some point in my life made the decision to go through the medical training process. And at, at the other end, I I came out as an OBGYN, mm. and then decided that um, I wanted to additionally study um, complex illness and end of life care. So I I'm also trained in palliative medicine, and I practiced both of them um, in Louisville, Kentucky. I did all my training out on the West Coast, but um, here I am now. And I spend most of my time doing palliative medicine and another big chunk of my time doing um, OBGYN care, which is really my focus is on obstetrics. I don't, I don't really do any GYN surgery anymore, hmm. but um, that's me. That's, wow. that's kind of like the, 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 the part people see professionally anyways. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. And throw in a little non-professional just for fun. Tell us a little bit about something else. <laughs> uh, well, my wife and I are, Burning Man enthusiasts, and um, I we're, we're like we're we're writing to the city council right now about getting styrofoam banned, and um, so we're super environmentally conscious, mm. and um, we've got a baby on the way. Where she, she, my wife Stephanie is 21 weeks, and my wife Stephanie is also training to become a pilot. Um, and apart from that, we just you know do weird stuff and and find fun things to do wherever we are, and uh, we have a pretty great life. That's beautiful. Oh, you guys sound super awesome. That's really magical. Yeah. I love that. And <laughs> I yeah. think Burning Man, right, if I'm correct, is actually how you found this show because you were searching for a podcast with Burning Man. Oh, and we have right. that in one of our titles because one of our moms got married at Burning Man while pregnant. And I think that's how you found the show. Is that right? <laughs> I, I totally forgot that. Yeah. But yeah, I was, I, I don't know. So the long version of this is that I guess I had forgotten that that was your podcast that I found because I was just at Burning Man this year and I found a woman there who had a baby with her and she and I got, we were like talking for some other reason, but then the topic of birth and pregnancy and whatnot came up 
And she had written a book on raising children at Burning Man. Like, like here's the ins and outs of what it would take to take a baby, you know, what it would require to take a baby there. And I said, you know what? My wife's pregnant. I'm now collecting all these notes on what to do and what, you know, the, the ins and outs of being pregnant at Burning Man. And we're maybe going to work on a second edition of that book. But, but the, uh, of the book that she wrote, but mm-hmm. interestingly, your podcast came up and I was like, you know, I remember hearing a podcast this and that, and it was yours. It was just so long ago that I'd forgotten that it was yours. So now we're full circle. Yes. Now we're totally <laughs> we're back on track. I love it. Yeah. We'll have to include a link to that episode in this yes. episode show notes in the spirit of sure. connecting all the dots. Yes. Yeah, so that was with Diana back in whoa, yes. like episode 113. So it was a while ago. Way back. Um, yeah. So it was like months and months ago. So cool, man. I love the, the synchronicities of things and <laughs> yes. just how it all ties together. It's really beautiful. There are no coincidences. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Um, so, Dr. Nathan, one thing that I thought would be cool to do, because we've been in contact for a minute then, you know, since you first heard of us yeah. in the show, and yeah. it kind of grew into this, you know, organic just appreciation for what each other are up to, and now here we are having this conversation. And I wanted to read an excerpt of an email that you sent us, because I feel like it really sets the stage. I feel like it really sets the powerful context for everything that someone's going to get out of this conversation. So I'm going to read that, and then we're going to kind of dissect it and have some fun. Sure. Yeah, let's do it. So this is from Dr. Nathan when he emailed us. It says, I'm an OBGYN, though I practice midwifery unless there's an absolute medical need for medical intervention. I'm hugely supportive of informed decision, shared decision-making, and patient-centered care. I think an important message that standard OBGYN physicians can take from your podcast is that there is good reason for which patients are increasingly hoping to deliver at home, and in parentheses, myself included, when my wife and I get pregnant. Hospitals are largely seen as safe spaces, though admittedly the way we treat pregnancy as illness creates more problems at times than it seeks to solve. What we can learn from your stories is that those people we seek to help are increasingly afraid and frustrated with our OBGYN approach. A woman's experience could and should be seen as a blueprint for how to fix the medical environment around pregnancy and birth. Wow. So... (laughs) I mean, just that alone. I mean, all the things of it. I think there are um, home birthing mamas, midwives, doulas listening to this, like, oh, all the things. Like, you're talking dirty, basically, with, like, decision-making, patient-centered care, informed decision. Like, those – like, that is it. I feel like everything you said just hit on every point – of what we hold space for as far as possibility for families, for babies, for mamas. Um, And you just, you were really well-rounded in your approach to it. And given the perspective that you have as a physician, I just think I had to share this because it was so beautiful. Well, I can't believe I wrote that. That's really well put. (laughs) Like, dang, I'm awesome. (laughs) God, I'm a good writer. Yes. So that all being said, I would love to take a step back for a moment and just hear a little bit from you on, you know, you said you went through um, med school and medical training and on the other end, you came out in OBGYN. Why is that or what led you to that path? Uh, You know, every time I'm asked that, I I think I give a different answer. And Mm -hmm. I, I think, honestly, I think I became very disillusioned in medical school with how people treated each other. And for some reason, I was on a rotation I, for some reason, you know, in the OBGYN department, I felt like people were maybe they treated each other better. And I was like, you know, if they're healthy people, there's so much physiology, there's, there's this magic of birth, like, why wouldn't I fit well here? And, um, and, and, and that was sort of it. Like, honestly, I was one of those people that didn't like any rotation in med school. I just really, I don't know, I guess I thought it was something different, you know, and, and when you get there, you just, don't see people anymore. You're, you know, you refer to room numbers by their primary diagnosis. Um, it just really wasn't, I wasn't super excited about being a doctor. And, um, for whatever reason, when I was in OBGYN, maybe it was the magic of birth and just this sort of mystery around pregnancy and whatnot that I was like, well, this, there's a lot to unpack here. Let's dedicate our lives to to studying this, this part of medicine. And, and then I guess the, the rest is history, so to speak. But, um, in residency, then I, I became further disillusioned about, about, you know, what, what our role was, you know, especially being a man, it was like, what, what am I doing here? You know? And, um, it's not that I don't think that, that 
OBGYNs should only be women or that doctors should necessarily be a certain way. It was just that for me, I learned, I, I, I came to realize that I'm in this very intimate space and, I'm, and unless I'm very, very careful, I'm going to, you know, and I don't mean careful, like in the, in the, you know, the, this sort of, even the ways that you think like the intimacy of being mm-hmm. with a woman with her legs and stirrups or anything. I mean, like, this is a very, very scary thing for people. And are we really doing this the right way? And, and is this really, is this really the best we can do? And when I asked those questions, I wasn't really rewarded for asking those questions. I was, I was more punished. Um, and, and it was like, well, gosh, if I can't ask the questions about this, then what the, then what the, what the heck are we doing? You know, um, if we don't ask the questions then we can't improve it. And so, you know, for, through four years of very hard training, which I'm sure you've heard about, you, you, you're also, you're also kind of dehumanized, you know, you're expected to sort of put everything in your life on hold. And when you become dehumanized, it makes it very hard for you to, to think of people as, as people. Um, and that, and that, that also, you know, there, there's also this element of being trained as a surgeon where 70% of your time you're cutting into somebody's body while they're asleep on the under, other side of a drape. And in order for, for you to do that, you can't really think of this as a person. Um, I know that that's very hard. It's even hard for me to say those words, but in order to be a good surgeon, oftentimes you have to kind of disconnect from the person and you have to really focus in on tissue planes and, and anatomy and this and that. And when you take a surgeon then and transplant them into this very intimate space where a woman is going through one of the maybe most magical and, and excite, exciting times of their life, it's also one of the scariest times. And if you're going to try to apply that surgical medicine to this very magical, very spiritual um, process, it, you're going to run into trouble. And I started noticing that very early on um, and realizing that, gosh, we, we have to do things very differently here. Like this is not regular medicine. There's something else that we need to be considering. And that's when I started learning about midwifery. And it was like, oh, this is whole person care. Oh, this is actual informed medical decision-making. This is putting a patient's needs and, and wants and, and story first. And then once we learn those things, then only then can we start applying medicine and trying to accommodate, you know, their needs. And so, so that's probably a, a long winded version, but um, as I'm progressing now in my career, I'm learning that that started happening for me, for me very, very early on. And I've met a lot of people like me who have had a similar kind of it's not like a aha moment. It's not the, the, the light bulb going off. It's a, a slow understanding and careful waiting and watching of what's happening. Um, and inevitably, if you're open-minded and you, and you really care about people, you realize that the medical system isn't doing a great job, at least in the United States, of, of taking care of people in labor and, and, and throughout their pregnancy. So here I am continuing to put the story together and um, doing my best. To, to remain open-minded and, and to continue learning from birth workers and people like yourself and my patients. And um, I think I'm doing a better job now than I was before since I've been, I've been, um, I've kind of come around to these, to these ideas. That's powerful, man. Um, there's a moment in your sharing where Sarah looked over at me, kind of uh, nodded because uh, when you talked about a surgeon and the surgeon's experience of having to, essentially disconnect from the, the person that they were, you know, operating on. Um, my father's a surgeon. And uh, last year, my his mother, my grandmother passed, she transitioned. And at, yeah. Yeah. at her, um, at her wake, you know, he was, he spoke. And one of the things he said is he's like, you know, I was trained as a surgeon. And as a surgeon, you don't look at at the people you're, you're working on as people, you look at them as, like you said, the, the diagnosis or, or the number, whatever it is. And so he, my dad was saying that it was very hard for him to answer the question, how do you feel about your mother passing? Because he had, he, he kind of kept running into the block of that training. So it was really interesting. Yeah, it was really interesting to hear you share that, you know, it's, it's very challenging as a surgeon when, you know, sort of your training is to look at this person as, not necessarily the, the the person that they are, but you know you've got that the job to do, and um, I just I just had a personal moment of reflecting um, as you said that, and and it made a lot of sense to me and for me. Um, thinking about some of the other experiences that I have had, uh, you know, when when I had been in a hospital or or you know had had conversations with uh, with other physicians. So I appreciate you saying that because there definitely was. Um, 
something powerful that that connected with me with you sharing so honestly. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Um, it's 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 interesting how sometimes it takes us years and years and years, and and we and and this is not a knock on surgeons, and, and I also know that there's a very important role for surgeons. You know, if there's Absolutely. bleeding, you want somebody to be able to stop the bleeding. If there's a ruptured appendix, you want somebody to remove that appendix. If there's a tumor in the lung making it hard to breathe, we need to remove that tumor. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, you know, when there's not, when there's not pathology, we can't bring our hammer and expect to fix that problem. And, um, so I appreciate you sharing that. And it's, it's amazing how we, we go through our careers and sometimes we're never really faced with this, with this dilemma, you know, this, this bigger picture dilemma in medicine until it's something that affects us personally. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, so it's not your dad's fault. It's, this is how we're trained and, um, and this is how we're, how, this is how we're expected to practice. So, um, yeah, so yeah. I, 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 I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what I think is powerful is, you know, what you saw as, uh, something within just the, your training and, and, and the expectation of how you were supposed to be with patients. And you saw that there was you know, there is this, like you, you said, you asked yourself the question, like, is this the best way that we can serve these patients? And, and you weren't satisfied with the answers you were um, receiving. So you went and did something about it. And I think that's, that's incredibly powerful. Yeah. And yeah, well, thank you. Um, I, you know, a, a big part of this is, is sort of, you know, we, we hear a lot about physician burnout and it's like, Hey, you got to do more yoga. You got to take <laughs> better care of yourself. That Like yoga is not going to fit. Like your, yoga does not fix years and years of training of, of dehumanization and, and depersonalization. Every physician that went into this process knew that they were going to be broke and knew that they were going to sacrifice a whole bunch of stuff. And so no physician goes into this thinking that, you know, I don't want to take care of people. I want to cut into their bodies and remove parts. Like nobody really wants to do that. They, they see that as a means of, of addressing suffering and alleviating pain and, helping to prolong life. That's the reason a person goes into a surgical field or a medical field or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they've all, they've all sacrificed, it, they've sacrificed so much that people, people don't even really appreciate how broken you can become in that training process. And, um, and so, and so if you have the, if you, so, so for me, I had sort of the, the insight to like, you know, I'm not sure if I'm really happy and I'm so unhappy with OBGYN that I might leave a medicine altogether. It wasn't just the, it just, it wasn't just how I saw birth being managed in the hospital. It was the whole thing. Like medicine sucks. I had my program director in residency tell me your wife needs to know that she's going to have to come second. And that's not acceptable to me. Like she's the one that got me through this in the first place. And, Mm -hmm. and so I had the luxury, I guess, maybe of saying, you know what, what else could I do that I could do better medicine? And that's how I found palliative medicine. And doing that allows me to, to make the majority of my salary by taking care of people at the end of life when I don't have surgery to fix problems. I quite literally only have my compassionate heart that brought me into this in the first place to get people through some very complex medical decision-making and alleviating their suffering and their pain and the pain of their family members. And so as a result, I was able to give up the surgical practice. You know, I, I, don't, I don't schedule people for hysterectomies or myomectomies or whatever anymore. I still have to do those things occasionally, but I get to focus entirely on birth, which is really the, it's the other side of the coin to death. And um, so my entire job now revolves around doing those things that brought me into this highly sacrificial field of medicine in the first place. And so I'm probably the happiest, luckiest physician out there, but only because I crafted it from a very, very early age. Yeah, I, ooh, so much of that. Uh, resonates with me. And I think for the first time, like I'm having aha moments and just kind of growth happening in real time listening to you, especially as this this whole show and the whole energy behind it and all the stories that we hear. I don't think I've yeah. ever sat and thought once from an empathic human perspective, how can we support physicians and care providers more? That's not yeah. something I've asked like that before. It's like, how do we support the families? How do we make care better? How do we make care better? Well, how do we make care better? How do we make the caregivers better in that exactly. sense? And how exactly. do we offer that same 
whether it's resources, whether it's conversations. And so I am so, so grateful to move beyond whatever sort of minor limitation I was still holding on to um, through this conversation with you right now that it's it's like literally like synapses are firing differently and new pathways are forming in my brain to start thinking about this differently from the perspective of everyone needs the support and care. And I agree with you that we don't collectively appreciate the trauma that I feel like millions of doctors have gone through and are now expected to be and do and act a certain way when they still have stuff to heal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's no field on the planet, no, no job on the planet where you throughout, you know, four years of hundred plus hour work weeks. And yes, they've changed the work hour restrictions, but you're just expected to lie. You're expected to say, I'm not working more than 80 hours. And if you are, it's your fault because you weren't efficient enough in your charting. That is literally, that's literally where we're at with medical training. Um, there's, there's no job in the, on the planet where that would be acceptable. In addition to um, you being forced into an environment for up to 12 years and you're not allowed to admit mistakes or to admit failure or to say I need help or to say that I'm emotionally exhausted or to say, Hey, I don't have the emotional ability to take care of this person because they remind me too much of my father, Mm. because that's, that's a sign of weakness. And if you don't have the best answer, then hand the scalpel to somebody else who does. Um, and so you can imagine how that environment, if that, if that, if that was an aviation, you don't say, Hey, um, Hey, dum dum. I don't care if you're not feeling well, go fly the plane. (laughs) Um, I mean, and, and, and likewise medical, our healthcare systems, who we all forget these are businesses now. Mm-hmm. The healthcare systems are run like big, run by NBAs, and their means of saving money is to cut out the extra physician because it's costing them too much money, putting more work on an already blown out physician. And you again with the avi- with in aviation, you don't say, well, let's get rid of the copilot because we can't afford to pay for them. Um, you just end up having disasters, and that's what we're seeing in medicine. And um, and so mm. here we are. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. That's a, that's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I didn't think we we're going there with this conversation, did you? <laughs> but hey, I love it. Um, I do want to take a quick break. And then when we come back, I want to talk about you specifically in your practice and your care of birthing women. So let's take a quick pause and we'll come back. A supportive work environment can help everyone working in schools stay resilient. Just finding people that can reassure me that I'm doing my best and that there are people out there who understand me and can help me through these situations. You are not alone. Leaning on each other, uh, colleagues in education, is is essential. You have to. We take care of one another. Find what helps at cdcfoundation.org slash how right now. That's cdcfoundation.org slash how right now. Teachers, administrators, and other school staff play an important role. Education can be a shining light, and it's really the equalizer for everybody. You are making a difference in people's lives, including your students. You can have a really bad day at school and still realize that what you're doing is making a bigger difference. We are the best profession in the world next to doctors, but even a doctor had a teacher. Find what helps at cdcfoundation.org slash how right now. Okay. So, Dr. Nathan, I'm curious with your care of pregnant, birthing women, families, what does it look like given your, you know, you've integrated midwifery into how you practice and just your your mindset that you approach birth with? Are you actually attending the home births? Are you supporting home birthing mamas as uh, additional care? Like, what does that actually look like for you? That's a good question. Um, so since I've just been, I've been out of OBGYN training only for two years now. Um, it's unrealistic for me to think that I, I, that, that I feel like I could provide the support necessary as a physician in the home setting. Um, I want to get more practice, you know, in the hospital, kind of just, just using those skills in a hospital setting so that I have the safety net of the hospital for myself. I mean, that might be a cop out, but it's also, it's also like if I lose my license and I can't practice OBGYN, then you've lost a one, maybe major advocate for this, for this whole program. Mm -hmm. Um, I will say on the record that I think that there's a large number, a large portion of patients who are low risk, who would meet every, you know, check every box on my list uh, to, 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 to 
proceed with a planned home delivery. Mm -hmm. ACOG's official recommendation is that we think it's better to be in the hospital, Mm -hmm. but, and I'm saying we, them, I I don't really consider myself uh, a a mouthpiece for ACOG. but, but, you know, we, we think it's, it's better to have in the hospital. But since patients are going to want to do this anyways, how can we best support them? That's kind of their official stance. And um, that's kind of my official stance, too. You know, it's, it's, it's not that I think everybody should be in the hospital or at home. Mm-hmm. I just think that you should, you know, if you know the risks and you're willing to accept the risks and, and we've had a conversation about it and you're low risk and you've had, a, especially if you've had babies before, I don't know why we wouldn't support people to do it at home because we all know that being in the hospital, you know, it it ends up leading to things being done to the body and for the, you know, the quote benefit of the woman. And it's just really not true. It's, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's there in order to meet the needs of, again, a very burned out, you know, labor and delivery team. But a lot of those things that we do are not really helping my patients. And if they're not helping my patients, then I'm not going to do them. And so, um, so, so, you know, you asked a little bit about, about, Sorry, maybe I got off track. Was the, was the first question just about um, what my practice is? Or do you want me to actually tell you like how I kind of do things in the hospital? This is great. I mean, yeah, definitely. We can go into okay. that of how you do things in the hospital. Because I think what I'm hearing and what I'm gathering is if there yeah, were more yeah. um, practicing doctors in, in hospital births who just approached it the way that you do, I think there would be more positive energy, so to speak, around hospital births in the sense like we don't want everyone to have a birth at home. Absolutely not. We're not saying everyone vacate the hospital. We're saying how can through what you just said in the informed choice, going over all the risks, then how can it be the the best environment wherever it is? Right, exactly. And, and, you know, to to add on to that, um, I think that the reason home-based birth is oftentimes perceived as dangerous is because the labor and delivery team receiving patients who are transferred to the hospital after a prolonged second stage or whatever, they're number one, they're not treated very well. Mm. And number two, it's possible that, that they delayed transferring to the hospital because you guys have proven through history that you're not going to treat them fairly and treat them appropriately. This, these are still people that are here to be served and to be helped by you. And just because they had a midwife overseeing their home birth and the home birth didn't go spectacularly well the way that they had hoped, it's your responsibility to treat them compassionately and, and, and to receive them with open, loving arms. But since we don't see that, we end up actually kicking ourselves in the butt and we end up, you know, with late transfers and we, we end up, you know, with people who are very afraid because they've heard horrible things that happen in the hospital and they end up in this, you know, this environment that is not, is, is doubly not very welcoming to them. So, so there's a lot there. Um, yeah. I, I I, I would right now, if anybody's in the Louisville area and they want to be transferred while I'm on call, absolutely. Come on in. If you're, Mm -hmm. if something doesn't go well, you know, and and you're worried or, or even if you just decide, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. Mm -hmm. I want to be in the hospital. Like that should be okay. Mm -hmm. That should be okay. But we haven't made it that way. And, um, so that's kind of, that's one area that I'm really working on. Um, as far as, as, as attending home births go, I will probably transition to that later. Mm-hmm. And right now I'm, I'm in a hospital. Yes, it's not ideal. Yes, it kind of stinks to have to follow hospital procedures and whatnot. But I do feel that when I'm involved in a patient's care, they get far better care. Um, and, and, and probably, I don't want to say equivalence, because being outside of the home itself, I think, drives the stress response. And I actually do think it's detrimental to labor for you to be in a place that doesn't make you feel um, cared for and safe. So, so in some circumstances, I actually think it's better and safer for you to be at home than to be in the hospital. It's not just if you meet those, those criteria that maybe it's an okay idea. I mean, I quite literally mean that for some people, it's going to be safer for you to be at home. Um, and, and so I eventually will probably transition that direction. I feel like that's kind of, (laughs) unfortunately it's oddly on the frontier of OBGYN right now, Mm. but that's, um, that's what I, I, I would love to support midwives and I would love to support patients who do desire that home birth. And, um, and the reason I can do that is, is because I, I know my training. I know what the data shows. I know that, inter- that, that fetal heart rate tracing tracings only have very, very limited utility and only whenever things are absolutely horrible. And, um, and for the majority of patients that are low risk, it's probably not all that beneficial. And, um, and so I know what I can do. I know that we, what, what we're capable of in the hospital. And I also know the detriment of being in the hospital and, 
And so that's probably more where my practice is heading. Um, right now I'm, I'm kind of working on making as, as safe of an environment as possible for patients that come into my hospital mm. while I'm a hospital based physician. Yeah. That's amazing. You know, it's, it's so interesting. Um, Dr. Nathan, you were talking about how when a, a person who has intended on a home birth, something, something yeah. happens with the home birth and they become, and they transfer and yeah. they may not be met with compassion and the the people whether it's the you know the the labor and delivery nurses doctors whatever maybe they have some sort of story or have some sort of thing that this was irresponsible of the parents and the midwives and all that so there's a story on one half that is guiding how they perceive the people transferring and then the the mom or dad or the people who are are you know delivering baby um, or having the baby they have some sort of story about how they're going to be treated were they to right. then transfer. So both sides could be potentially holding these stories about the other that then self-fulfilling prophecy almost create this situation where, you know, they're not being met with compassion or maybe they show up with a little bit more aggression. And it's just really interesting because I, I feel like that could, like, I know that I've felt some of those stories. And I've run some of those in my own mind about, you know, this is how it's going to be if we were to go to a hospital. It's just This is just mm-hmm. how hospitals are. Yeah, yeah. And that, yeah. that to me seems like a, one of the, the challenges to overcome in this. It's, it's, you know, like one of the things I was thinking in my mind was like, how would you, what advice would you give for families who either chose to deliver in a hospital or um, for whatever reason ended up in a hospital how they can advocate for themselves, how they can, you know, feel empowered, you know, not necessarily come across like they're trying to run the show, but at the same time feel like they do have some sort of control that, 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 that they do have a say in what goes on. What, what, how, what advice would you give to create that sort of scenario? Oh man, that's a, that's a really good question, Matthew. Um, I will. So there's a, this is a loaded question and it has to come with a loaded answer. Um, so we used to say in residency that physicians, that being a physician was a risk factor for something bad happening in labor. And, and what I mean is like, uh, you know, a, a, a female physician comes in, she's pregnant, she's in labor. And we actually, I consider that we all, we all did in the back of our heads, we consider that a risk factor for something bad happening. And the reason is because they, it's like almost like they know too much and they try to control every little aspect. The same goes for people that come in with birth plans that are so elaborate that it doesn't require, that it doesn't, it doesn't, um, doesn't allow for any wiggle room whatsoever in any direction. And as soon as your expectation is that the the path is going to go from A to B to C to D to E, you're, 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 you're mistaken because labor is so out of your control, just as pregnancy was. And even though we think we're in control, whether we're physicians or patients, we're really not. And so a big part of, a big part of the way that we can advocate is, is to ask questions. And the physicians and nursing staff needs to be able to answer those questions. I don't, I don't think it's, it's bad for people to push for various things. I don't. I also think that we have to realize our limitations in the, in the labor and delivery world. Um, because there, there's really no way to know how your labor is going to go. And that's why OBGYN, that hospital-based practice, has gotten in trouble in the first place. Like trying to put people onto these labor curves or trying to anticipate how they're going to respond to different medications or whatever is taking, is putting trust in ourselves as opposed, in, as opposed to in the process. And, and so, which is probably why birth goes so well for a lot of people at home. They're in a place that they're not scared. There isn't really options to do all these other things anyway. So we have to kind of just trust that what's happening is going to continue to happen. And, and so be it. Um, but as far as advocating for yourself, I think that, you know, a big part of that is just feeling comfortable asking questions and knowing when to push back. You know, if you feel like a person isn't making eye contact with you or they're not, you know, maybe they're just tired or whatever. It's, it's okay for you to ask for a different nurse or to ask for a different physician. Um, it's also, it also, you know, if if you have a doula or a midwife that you've been working with, I would invite them to come in and 
instead of coming in with a defensive position that somebody is there to hurt you, come in kind of stroking the ego of this team, realizing all those limitations that I told you. Like these are these are yeah. people that are used to getting pushback. And so they may can't come in being defensive themselves and realizing that like, okay, I have what I can react to here is my reaction to their defensiveness, right? And so when they come in, you say, hey, listen, we really wanted to have a home birth. We're here now. This was not our birth plan, but we're so happy we're here. I, I like, you know, I, I, we really want to work with you to, to get a safe outcome. And, and, you know, we're, we're all ears. What do you think? Mm. You know, asking a person to share their knowledge is one way to very quickly and charmingly get them on your side. And I will tell you, even sitting at nurses stations and whatnot, it's like, oh, those patients are so difficult. What they're referring to is I'm exhausted as a nurse or Mm. whatever. Those people in that room think that they can control this. They, I know that they can't control this. I don't know why we're trying to control this thing, Mm. but here's those tools that we can try to give to alleviate their suffering. And all of those tools are not the things that you actually need. The tools that you need are to be kind of felt cared for. And the tools that we bring to the table are medicines and weird transformer beds and stirrups and cervical exams and all these things because, because those people are trying to help. So, so what I would say is come in with a plan, but then once you've established rapport with the provider, with whether it's a nurse or a physician or a midwife in, in many hospitals, be willing to kind of have a conversation because only then are you really going to find something that works for you, you know, in, in your, in your labor. Um, and apart from that, if you feel unsafe, if you feel like something isn't happening, it is okay to push back a little bit harder. If you feel like you're in a place where, Hey, something's being done here that we're not comfortable with. We haven't had a conversation about doing this. We haven't been consented for that. Once that, once you hit that point, then it is okay. I think to push back harder, um, because you also need to keep yourselves protected. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a, that's a hard question to answer. <laughs> you know, I, I am very, very appreciative of, um, the way you answered that question. I think that was a, a, amazing. And I, and I know it was a big question. Um, but man, that was, that was awesome. I, I mean, I feel like for anybody who is listening, who, uh, might find themselves in that situation. Yeah. I mean, you, you just like you, you shared what I thought was really amazing. You shared some of what, is going on for the physician and the nurses. Yeah, which we don't hear about. Which you don't hear. And, you know, they're they're humans as well. And so that to be able to connect with somebody and, and have empathy and, and connect with them on that human level so that the two of you can, can work towards a, an awesome outcome, it's like, yeah, that makes so much sense. So I appreciate your willingness to answer a tough question like that. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, and always remember, they're there to care for you. They are there for the quote, we just want a healthy mommy, healthy baby. And they think that, and we think that we're helping you by providing tools because we don't like seeing a person suffer, whether it's anxiety, it's pain, it's this prolonged labor course. Like sometimes physicians act with really good intentions. And of course, there's always that, you know, to hell with good intentions. But if they're offering something, it's because they're trying to help. And unless you feel like they're doing something that's intentionally harmful to you or simply convenient for them, only then do I think we really need to push back because yeah. it, it's, it's, a, it's okay to acknowledge that, hey, I know you're trying to help. You know, for us I, right now, I don't think we want to do that. Can we try this alternate path? Mm-hmm. And most people are going to say, oh, you've acknowledged I'm trying to help. Let's now try to find something that, that, that will help you. I thought I was bringing something helpful to the table, but instead I came in just pushing an epidural and you've said time and time again, you don't want that. Maybe we should talk about getting you out of bed and getting you in the shower and helping you walk around and finding you a Swiss ball. Um, and, and like, let's talk about other things because, you know, just because you're pushing back on the epidural doesn't mean that you're pushing back on my help. It's just sometimes we come with these defensive, it, it becomes a, you know, a, a squabble right off the bat. And, and both patient patients want our help and physicians want to give help. It's just a matter of like, again, having that conversation, it's, it just requires us to be people to one another. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, really. It does. So I want to wrap up with the topic of now you're preparing for a birth in your future and becoming a father and your wife being pregnant. And, you know, you mentioned a little bit of the physician who might know too much. Is, you know, is there anything now with the the experience you have, the the 
the practice that you lead and the mindset that you have, how is that process going for you as you and your wife prepare for that? Yeah. So I told you before we started recording that Stephanie, um, you know, we've been together for almost two decades. We've been apart from a period when I was in med school. So we've known each other for many years now. And she has been through this whole training process for me and my whole change of heart process. Um, and so she actually has, I think, without me intending, she, she has become afraid of the birth process because she's heard all of the horror stories of, of what happens in hospitals. And I have attended home births before and I've come back from those home births and I've said, oh my God, babe, this is what birth could look like. And she's seen this like, you know, sparkle in my eye. And so she does see the value of not being in a hospital. I think that she is still, um, this is still her decision. And um, she and I are talking at length about sort of what we want to do. Her plan as of right now is to find a birth center that will allow her sort of the comfort of home without completely losing the safety net of having somebody else manage the labor. Um, and, and she initially didn't want me to be her physician. <laughs> and then she yeah. learned like, oh, you get really good results. You have really good rapport with patients. Oh, you're doing things that lead to a very low C-section rate. Maybe I do want you involved. And I've <laughs> actually stepped back because I want to be the dad. I want to be right. the supportive mm-hmm. husband. I don't want to be the doctor. Um, and, and so I think what we've, we've kind of, we've kind of settled on finding a really supportive OB doctor that might be able to accept a transfer. Um, and if she's, if she's in a, in a birth center, she'll have a midwife that will hopefully have a very hands-off approach. And we haven't really gotten to that, to that selection process yet, but Mm -hmm. she, she doesn't, I I think that she's going to try to forgo pain management apart from maybe some nitrous gas. Mm -hmm. Um, she really liked that idea. And, uh, you know, all that I can do is, um, is kind of answer questions as they arise and support her. She's an adult. She's lived her whole life and she knows what she wants. Um, and if you met my wife, you would, you would totally agree with that. Mm. <laughs> she's a, she's a force to be reckoned with. And, um, but she's also very realistic. And so her process right now through labor or through, um, pregnancy has been, um, we've had, a, we've had a, she's had a very you know easy pregnancy. She and I have talked about this daily. It's like, she's like, this kid's going to be a nightmare in its first year of life because I'm like, too happy being pregnant now and uh, she hasn't had nausea or anything. And, um, and, uh, so, so her process right now, I think is really just trusting in her body to have this, to, to go through this event. And, um, she's, she's got her own own way of doing that. And I, and I, I'm proud of her. She's, mm. she's got a lot on her, on her table, having been through so much of the bad stuff that I've talked to her about. Um, in residency. And, and like I said, had I known it was going to have this effect, I just, I didn't even, it didn't even occur to me. I was just in yeah. such a state of suffering myself yeah. that I actually yeah. kind of probably programmed her in a way to, to not trust it, but she's getting it. I mean, she's building um, sort of a, a, a collection, a social network of people that are, that are kind of rallying around her. And she's, I think, feeling slowly kind of getting to the place where she's she can feel kind of safe with the process and kind of empowered in the yeah. process for sure. Beautiful. Yeah, that's that's real. I, I appreciate you sharing that and and Stephanie through you. You know, um, even though she's not physically in the conversation right now, just being a part of it. Um, you know, I, I really appreciate that that perspective and that candor as it relates to. Um, you know, you might have certain ideas or expectations around particularly the world of doctors and physicians, like what that means about who they are as people or what that must mean, you know, when when they have kids or if they have a family member going through something, you know, you, we make a lot of assumptions, um, but that you're <laughs> human beings figuring out as well and having your own process and your own understanding of what it's going to be like for yourselves to go through a pregnancy, to have a birth, to become parents. It's, you know, yeah. your own yeah. unique experience. You know, you are a doctor and you are a man and a human and a husband and a soon to be dad. You are all of these things. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, absolutely. And, and, you know, it, it's one other thing I wanted to add on to, to piggyback on that is, is that in selecting a doctor and knowing all the things I know about OBGYNs, obviously you can, you can probably imagine I'm pretty fearful of what type of care we're going to get. Sure. It's not like we can test drive it. You yeah. know, it's not <laughs> yeah. like, uh, yeah. Yeah. let's see what this might be like, you know, but, but I will say that I started asking around and uh, about what OBs, you know, which OBs people recommended and, um, and 
literally every single person within the birth world at my hospital system, which is Norton, recommended the doctor that we are now seeing. His uh-huh. name is Reed Nett because Reed has been a huge proponent for getting birth tubs and getting nitrous and getting this very minimally um, minimal intervention, very hands-off approach. And she attracts a lot of low-risk women who want the safety net of a hospital without being without um, having to to overcome some of the 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 challenges of being in a hospital hospital uh, environment for their birth. So, you know, so whenever every whenever all the OBs are telling you to go to this person who's low intervention, it mm. should tell you something about how OBs actually feel about birth. They know it's low risk. They yeah. know it doesn't need intervention. But there's these other things that we're programmed with that make us do these things in the, the labor process that are not helpful. And I don't know how to get people to like shake them until they stop doing every four hours cervical exams or running Pitocin automatically, just thinking that it's a good thing to do. You know, it's, it's just, it's again, it's getting stepping back and just looking at what we're doing and not losing the forest through the trees. Um, um, and, and so I don't know, having met this OBGYN, it's like, okay, if every other OB is telling me to go to you because you're hands off, it tells us like we do value that approach. It's just a matter of getting us to practice that way. Yeah. Yeah. So well said. I think, oh, yes, yes. Dr. Nathan, I'm, um, I'm, I'm very grateful that you joined us on the podcast to have uh, a very real and honest conversation about this stuff. And your, your background and your experience, um, it, it just, it, it lent a whole other dimension to this conversation that um, I learned a tremendous amount. And I know that everybody listening got a lot from it. And once again, I'm just very, very grateful to you and, and for the work that you do um, and for your willingness to just to share your truth. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. And, and thanks to both of you for sort of being vulnerable enough to have these conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll just kind of sort of finish with, you know, again, we're all people, we're all, tr- we all should be trying to make this place better and to help one another live uh, more happily and more collectively sort of, um, you know, as, as, as one kind of giant organism here, because we sort of have to. And, and if we're just going to continue to, to sling mud back and forth across whatever aisle, whether it's political or it's in the birth world or whatever, it's just, it's not helping. I think we're all learning that, that we all kind of need to start cooperating and, and, and taking care of one another a little bit better. Agreed. Absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Nathan. Yeah. You're welcome, guys. Take care. It's my pleasure. Quick note about the Doing It at Home podcast. Matthew and I are not doctors or medical professionals, and nothing we say should be taken as medical advice or opinion. If you have medical or health-related questions, please take them to a trained professional. We're here simply to entertain you with stories and conversations about pregnancy, birth, and parenthood. Does your father know you're listening to this podcast? Well, when you're done, why don't you stop by and check out a show that is 100% dad-approved? Datages. Hi there, I'm Chad Higgle. If you're looking for useful insights and practical advice you can actually apply to work, family, education, philanthropy, and just life in general, check out Datages. That's D A D A G E S, wherever you listen to your podcasts. <laughs>